0: Re remembered A one Act play written and performed by Jay Sullivan Setting The Setting is a dimly lit theater. Throughout the space pools of light illuminate a series of large photographs. The photographs contain larger than life objects from a man's personal belongings a razor a wallet, a suit jacket, and many other common objects. The objects have been photographed on dark backgrounds. The photographs and lighting give the entire space the feeling of loss in someone no longer with us. There is a projection screen high above center stage. Projected on the screen is a frozen film frame of a man, barely distinguishable. Center stage is a small meditation pillow. On the floor in front of it sits a closed leather bound book. Jay enters. He sits cross legged on the meditation pillow in semi darkness. The lights fade down on the photographs and the performance begins. Oh, Oh, fuck! That guy is such an asshole. A light snaps on, illuminating Jay on the meditation pillow. Jay, I have just come home from playing baseball. Well, actually, I wasn't playing baseball. I was at a baseball game where I should have been playing baseball except for some guy named Chowy or Chewy or Chow Chow or oh, fuck, I don't know. But anyway, the asshole that runs the team. Okay, sure, it's been 10 years since I played baseball, but I am used to playing. I am used to being one of the best. And I can't understand how or why I ended up sitting on the bench for this team of guys over 30.
1: Um, um, um. It's
0: a new age, the late 80s, and I thought this meditation thing was going to help calm me down. But inside, I am still raging.
1: Home, home, home.
0: Suddenly, in my mind's eye, I see a horizon far, far in the distance. A horizon with an orange sky and purple-red mountains like you see in Arizona. Directly in front of me is the surface of a death valley-like floor with dried, cracked brown mud stretching away until it melds with the far-off mountains.
1: Om. Om.
0: The color of the mountains start to change, getting darker and darker and then black. It's a black cloud and it has covered the purplish-red mountains and now the orange sky as well as it quickly moves towards me. A black, swirling, angry cloud of soot and ash. Closer and closer and then with an intense gust. Blackness. Lights snap on, and Jay's eyes are open. The black cloud is gone, and so are any thoughts of Chow or Chewy or... All that's been replaced by a big white house on a big green lawn, and... Oh, yeah. It's Marlboro. I remember that now. When I was a young boy, my father was at Marlboro State Psychiatric Hospital. Why I am thinking of this now, I really don't know. It's not like it was some kind of repressed memory. It was something I knew about, but I just never thought about. And out of this day of anger, this day of rage, this frustration, this day of not playing baseball, comes this memory of Marlboro. A drive to Marlborough in an old green Buick, a long driveway to the big white house on the big green lawn. A hard floor with iron-framed beds and thin mattresses. An unseen radio playing an unhappy song.
1: Da 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 da
0: da Jay, as if he's trying to remember the song.
1: Da uh, da uh, I sit I sit and watch the children play hey, 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 hey. Smiling faces I can see but not for me I sit and watch As tears go by.
0: House lights fade out. Lights fade up on one of the large photographs, illuminating a large left-handed baseball glove. Jay, someone once asked me, when did you break from your father? When was the moment he was no longer God? I think we all have moments like this, the moment when the spell is broken, the moment when we realize our parents are fallible, the moment our mother or father is pushed off the pedestal. My father and I are playing catch in the backyard when it happens. I had just raced home from first grade, desperate to see him. He was home from Marlborough. I burst through the front door and jumped into his arms. I felt the roughness of his three o'clock shadow against my cheek. It was comforting. An hour or so later, he said the words I had been waiting an eternity to hear. Go, go get my glove. Now, in the fading light of the backyard, my father throws a baseball and I catch it. Just like I knew it would be. I am good at this, this game of catch, and no matter what I imagine I have done or said to make them take my father away, I know I am good at playing catch, and it makes it all better. Then I miss one. How could this be? Another throw, and another miss. This wasn't supposed to happen. I am confused, hurt. I'll get the next one, I vow throw, a miss, and another shameful walk to pick up the ball. I am near tears. I can't look at my father. I pick up the ball and I throw it back. And Now trying really, really hard, I concentrate on following the ball into my glove the way my father taught me. Another miss. But this time I realized the ball isn't going straight it is moving from right to left
1: it is curving
0: my father is chuckling and it suddenly dawns on me that he is doing something to make the ball curve he is making me miss my body starts screaming but i am silent i throw the ball back hard okay this time this time i will catch it he throws again I watch the ball as it moves right to left and then down. I reach with my glove just as the ball is about to hit the ground. I catch it. That is the moment. I then throw the ball back with a glare and a force that is a five-year-old's equivalent of fuck you. My father is off the pedestal forever. Jay picks up the leather-bound book. J. Happy moments with my father. He turns the page and then again and then again as he hums.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: In the days following my father's return from Marlborough, it was clear that things were not going to be the same. That my father was not going to be the same. He slept many of his days away on the couch. He lost his sales job at IBM and we moved from a suburban house with a big backyard to an apartment complex out on the highway. And somehow, for some reason, I thought it was all
1: my fault.
0: Stage lights fade out. Lights then fade up on one of the large photographs illuminating a stainless steel handheld razor. J. Shortly after Marlborough and the fall, I am sitting on the toilet in my grandmother's basement in Brooklyn. We visit Grandma here in this basement playroom, one that has a kitchen where she makes food for us. Downstairs, it's dark, lit by little windows. But in the bathroom where I sit, it is bright. The lights are on with the door closed, and I'm surrounded by bright white walls. I am sitting there, doing what I planned that morning when I found a treasure of my father's in the bathroom at home. Outside the door, I can hear my mother and my grandmother and my sisters in this place downstairs. My father is somewhere, maybe maybe nowhere. My mother knocks on the door. Jay, what are you doing in there? The door opens. What have you got in your mouth? I open my mouth and stick out my tongue. There, in the bright light of the bathroom, it's easy for my mother to see that lying on my tongue is a gleaming, shiny, double-edged razor blade. My mother screams and yells something to my grandmother, who is a nurse. She jumps into action, carefully leading me out of the bathroom, and then, from behind, her hand hits the middle of my back with such a tremendous force. Whack! The razor blade comes flying out of my mouth and bounces along the floor of the linoleum tiles. I am not hurt f- physically, but in the days to follow, I become withdrawn, quiet, all the while just trying to be good, trying to be better. It's a child's response to feeling responsible for his father's bipolar illness and the chaos it's created. lights fade up on one of the large photographs in the space this one reveals a brown paper bag j it was almost a daily sight my father arriving home from his job in new york city with a six-pack tucked under his arm the brown paper bag contrasting against his dark suit for all the world to see he put the six-pack into the refrigerator still in the bag I think he did this to hide from my mother how many beers he would drink in the course of the evening. He didn't know it, but he was hiding the beer count for me as well. I can remember looking at the bag, wondering how many he drank, and hoping it was less than more. Sometimes even peeking in, trying to assess the damage. I was usually disappointed. House lights fade out. The projection screen high above center stage shows a picture of the baseball legend, Mickey Mantle.
1: Jay sings. Doot. Toot do doot, Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever get back. Doot, 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 do cause it's one two three Strikes, you're out at the old ball game. June 8th,
0: 1969. Yankee Stadium. Mickey Mantle Day. Mickey had announced his retirement earlier that year, and this was the day that they retired his number. It was billed as a day to remember. My father had come home from work the night before with tickets, and we were lucky enough to be among the 61,157 people who sat within the hallowed grounds of Yankee Stadium that day. Mickey was my idol, as was the case with most 11-year-old boys in the New York area at that time. And I was elated to have the chance to go to Yankee Stadium to see my hero get his due. I knew there would be this long, adoring, standing ovation, and I was eager to be part of it. I remember sitting on the edge of my seat along the third baseline as Yankee broadcaster Frank Messer stood at the microphone near the pitcher's mound and introduced teammates past and present. Phil Rizzuto, Whitey Ford, Elston Howard, Mel Stolomire, Joe Pepitone, and many, many others. And then it was time. The iconic Yankee broadcaster Mel Allen was brought to the microphone. He was brief. He was introducing someone that needed no introduction. One of the all time greats, a magnificent Yankee, he motioned towards the dugout, the great number seven, Mickey Mantle. A roar so loud, so exhilarating, that I felt as if it would lift me off my feet and high into the sky above the classic Yankee Stadium facade. There was Mickey. The cheers were still louder. I clapped and I clapped and I clapped, imagining that if I clapped long enough and loud enough that I could will the crowd to stay standing, stay cheering forever. Two minutes, three minutes, Four minutes the cheers would start to die down only to swell up and rise again as if we were determined to give Mickey a memory that was as great as the ones he had given us the longer the ovation went the more determined we were to keep it going but then something happened that ruined it my father sat down he sat down stopped clapping, and took a chug of his beer. I was shocked and angry. Get up! Get up! The voice inside my head was screaming. It's Mickey Mantle! He took another chug of his beer. I clapped harder and harder, as if doing so could bring my father back onto his feet. But nothing I did could fix it. My father was embarrassing me, just like he always did, just like I knew he would.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> House lights fade out, and when they come up again, Jay is pantomiming as if his arm is holding up another person. Jay. I am helping my father up the stairs after a long night of drinking. But it was more than the usual six pack or two. My mother was out and I had invited some friends over, or at least most of them were my friends. The kid that lived behind us was part of the crowd, but he was never kind to us. His family owned a successful business, which he never let me forget. He never let me forget that they had a nicer house than ours, a nicer car than ours, a bigger bank account than ours, a better family than ours. The group of us in the kitchen were barely 18, but it was that crazy time when someone in the New Jersey government decided that drinking at 18 years old should be legal. So on a Friday, you'd find us drinking in someone's yard, someone's garage, or someone's kitchen. My mother was out, but my father was home. My father was at his favorite drinking place at the back corner of the kitchen table, so I tried to move the group from the kitchen into the living room. But the kid that lived behind us had brought a bottle of whiskey, and he was cajoling everyone to drink with him at the kitchen counter. He was especially persistent with my father, and I could see his sole purpose was to get my father stumbling, embarrassingly, shamefully drunk. He could then move his family another peg higher than ours, or maybe more to the point, move ours lower. I began to have a sinking feeling, even though I heard my father say, I don't drink the hard stuff, but... Pretty soon he was, and an hour later I saw him grab onto the kitchen table to keep himself from falling on the floor. I ended the night and threw everybody out of the house. Now I am helping my father up the stairs and into the bedroom. I help him undress, but his trousers get tangled around his ankles and he falls down in the narrow place between the bed and the wall. Unable to get up, he is dazed, helpless, laying on the floor in his white, stretched-out jockey shorts. I get him up, put him to bed, and then go into my room and cry. Jay looks down at the open, empty book of happy memories and then closes it.
1: All I hear is the sound Of rain falling on the ground I sit and watch As tears go by
0: Stage lights fade out And when they come up again Jay is facing an imaginary door on downstage left, profiled to the audience. Jay, I am at my sister's apartment in St. Paul, Minnesota. On the other side of the door, somewhere in the apartment, is my father. I haven't seen him since I cut off contact with him ten years earlier because his bipolar disorder was creating havoc in his and in my life. This weekend in St. Paul would turn out to be one of the last times I would see him before he died. My sister was getting married, and she had invited our father to the wedding and flown him out to St. Paul from New York. When I last saw him ten years earlier, he was on the edge of homelessness. While we had been out of contact, he had fallen over the edge and into the abyss of shelters, the streets. I knocked on the door. I heard his voice. I'll get it. I readied myself. I looked up as the door opened, but only saw the inside of the apartment. I turned my gaze downward, and there he was, much shorter and much older than I remembered him. A month or two later, I went to see him at the home where he was living. My sister, thankfully, had gotten him out of the homeless shelters and found a reasonable place for him to live. He walked me around the building, stopping to see the receptionist in the process. I remember his face lighting up as he introduced me. Hey, Susan, this is my son. We sat down to talk. I asked him how it was to live there. Can't beat three squares a day, he answered. I was struck by how his priorities had changed from his days as a top salesman for IBM. Ten minutes into the conversation, he asked if he could come live with me and my wife. There it was, my biggest fear. I'd end up intractably involved again in his complicated and unsolvable life. I ignored the question. A couple of months later, he left a message on my answering machine. He was in the hospital, but I let a couple of days go by before I returned the call. A nurse picked up the phone. I explained that I was his son. Her voice broke with emotion. He's been taken to surgery. I knew immediately. I said to my wife, My father's dying. We drove the two hours from the Jersey Shore to the hospital in Brooklyn. The last time I saw him, he was under anesthesia and being prepped for surgery. He was in septic shock, his stomach protruding out the size of a basketball. It was not good, but he survived the surgery. At 4 a.m. the next morning, the phone rang. The doctor was on the other end. God help him, your father has died. I hung up the phone, called my sister, and told her the news. Then I buried my head in the pillow and went back to sleep.
1: I sit and watch as years go by.
0: Twenty years later, Steve and I are standing on a street corner. Cars are whizzing by. It's a busy street a block from the ocean, and across the way is the modest white and gray shingled house where Steve grew up and where I spent a fair amount of my teenage years. Steve's father still lives there, and currently, as Steve and I talk, his father is on his daily outing, being wheeled down a quiet side road by his live-in caretaker. Steve spends most of his time caring for his father— and that means Mr. Mindick is able to stay in the house that has been his home for the last 60 years instead of having to move to some assisted living place. Steve's father has Alzheimer's, and even though he sometimes has trouble remembering the people around him, he remembers that he is at home, and that is important. I talk with Steve about his father and how Steve cares for him. It makes me... A little jealous. Really? Jealous? I was happiest when my father was not around. And now I wish I had a relationship with my father like Steve's current relationship with his father. I wish I was the good son dedicated to the happiness of his aging father. Now... I had come to a sort of detente with my father since he died, but anyway, my my father is 20 years gone, and there is 30 years before that, and I think there is no going back, but the somewhat disturbing thoughts from my street side chat with Steve stay in the back of my mind for several months until they find an opportunity to move forward and intrude on my present. I'm in a photography workshop when it happens. After spending most of my career creating media for corporate clients, I've taken this workshop to get back to one of my teenage passions, taking still photographs. The workshop leader suggests that we photograph a memory that we would like to take into eternity. You would think that this would suggest a happy memory if you were going to live with it for eternity. But for some reason, on the train ride home, I start thinking about my father again. My thoughts eventually go to the memory of the first curve in the backyard at age five, and then to the many, many other curves that followed. These were the memories I had spent a lifetime trying to forget, but here they were again, refusing to stay in the dark cloud of the past. I knew enough about psychology to know that you can't ignore the past forever. So, reluctantly, with a camera in my hand providing cover and some comfort, I decided to move forward by taking a perilous journey to the past. House lights fade out. Lights fade up on one of the large photographs, reilluminating a large left-handed baseball glove. j I find myself at a moment before the curve, a few minutes before the curve. My father had told me to go get my glove. I had been waiting weeks for this moment. this chance to play catch again. I ran down the dark inner hallway to my parents' bedroom. I opened the door, and inside, the room was filled with the glowing golden light of the late afternoon sun. I looked towards the closet, and suddenly, I was afraid. I was afraid that the glove would not be there. It would not be in the closet, and I would be disappointed again. Slowly, I walked to the closet door and opened it. And there, on the shelf, was my father's baseball glove. This was the memory I wanted to take into eternity. So, I decided to photograph a baseball glove. Now, since my father died indigent... I had very few objects that he actually owned, so I spent my time looking for a baseball glove at garage sales, flea markets, and on eBay until I found one that felt right. I spent weeks photographing that glove, and from it emerged not only a photograph, but also the insight into how I might be able to reconcile with my father, how I might have a more normal adult relationship with him, how I might have the experience of him living with me in his old age, even though he was long past. How? I would imagine it. I would imagine my father lived with me. I placed other objects around the house that I remembered him owning, a wallet on my nightstand, a razor on the bathroom sink, black wingtip shoes on a newspaper being polished. I photographed the objects large and direct, seeking to dissolve the movie I had in my head of a weak, veiled man and replace it with images that were strong and masculine. I started a journal that recorded our imagined life together. Our days at the beach, the coffee shop, the ball field. Our imagined time together sparked real memories. Cooking Christmas pancakes, fishing on a tiny pond, learning how to ride a bike. The more images I created, the more I remembered, and the more I wanted to be his son again. Someone once said that you could love anyone if you take the time to learn their story. I dug into my father's professional past, finding a man that was far different than the one I thought I knew, one that I could be proud of. Pledge captain at his fraternity, top salesman at IBM and 3M, president of the New Jersey JCs, MBA at Seton Hall, gained several years after his first problems with bipolar disorder. I photographed a college ring, a how-to-win-friends-and-influence-people book, a briefcase. I came to realize that my father was really smart and educated. Something that never occurred to me in the first 52 years of my life. He was an innovator. He was about what was new, what was next. Selling computers for IBM in the early 60s, it's like working for Google today. In 1963, he had a new 1963 Dodge Dart, one with a push-button transmission. And we were the only ones on the street to have a portable stereo system a zenith that had speakers that detached, and you could place them ten feet on either side of the turntable. It was the centerpiece of my parents' barbecues and any barbecue in the neighborhood. The latest records arrived in the house with the hits of 1963, 1964, and one from a new group with an album called Meet the Beatles. In my re-remembered past, we were living the American dream in the time of Camelot. With the largest yard in the neighborhood and a bigger pool each year, home movies play on the projection screen as Jay sings. <laughs>
1: The dark days are gone, and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. I love you.
0: Three objects of my father's, and only three objects, have remained with me from the day my mother and father divorced and my father moved to the YMCA some 50 miles away. My father's movie camera his film projector, and our family's 8mm home movies. They have stayed with me as I moved from apartment to apartment, house to house, bachelorhood to married life, and young adulthood into middle age. I really didn't think much of this other than I am a photographer and a filmmaker and old cameras, projectors, and film are interesting to me. Somewhere along this process the memory of my father editing home movies together at the kitchen table came to the surface. He would edit several short reels together into one long reel that was suitable for Saturday night viewing. I decided to dig the home movies out of the closet. I wanted to look at them carefully, so I found a used 8mm film editor on eBay. It was nearly 50 years after my father's problems with bipolar disorder started. I eagerly opened the tattered box that arrived from Indiana with an old CalArt film editor inside. It was just like the one my father edited with at the kitchen table, as he sought to turn our home movies into polished productions. I strung up an old 8 millimeter reel, and the images came to life on the small viewing screen. The editor allows you to stop on a single frame in the viewer ones that seemingly were insignificant when they flew by in an instant on the projector. Stopped as single, solitary images, they become very strong and revealing. One frame from a three-second clip showed my father around 28 years old, full of promise and ambition. Now, 50 years later, as I looked at the film on the small editor, I could see where he made the edits. The edit points were initially interesting mostly because the glue over the images produced some interesting visual effects. Then I realized that these just weren't random or clean-up edits. These were edits that pieced together carefully thought-out scenes. Five-year-old Jay runs across the screen, cut. Pan across the house and stop on Jay in the driveway, Jay waves, cut. Jay climbs up on the pool ladder and dives into the water. Cut! It was clear that my father was the director, and I was a willing and available actor. I have no memory of these filmmaking experiences, but watching the films, I can imagine my father saying, Jay, run from the top of the driveway and right past me. Or, Jay, when I point to you, you wave to the camera. Hmm... Interesting, my father was an amateur filmmaker. Then it hit me. My father was an amateur filmmaker. I am a photographer and filmmaker. Really? Could it be?
1: Holy shit! After 50 years
0: of focusing on what I didn't get from my father, I suddenly realized that my introduction to the world of photography, films, and editing came from my father, in the backyard, on our driveway, and at an 8mm editor on the kitchen table. The movie-making pretty much stopped for my father after he had his problems, but it continued on for me. It's taken me to the rural mountains of China, to the bush of West Africa, to the ghettos of San Paulo, Brazil. I've interviewed the president, a secretary of state, and hundreds of everyday people who've been generous in sharing their thoughts, beliefs, and experiences with me and the camera. Most of all, I've spent my working life doing something that feels
1: like play. Thanks, Dad. Twelve years after
0: I pushed my father off the pedestal, I stand on the mound on a warm and windy day. Senior year in high school. The catcher puts down two fingers and I throw another deuce. It's breaking big and wide today. The batter flails helplessly. Strike three. Someone on the bench enters another K in the scorebook as I walk off the mound. It is the end of the third inning. I have struck out eight of the first nine batters. I went on to strike out 14 batters that day. Fourteen strikeouts, one walk, no hits. And it was that big sweeping curveball that was the killer starting right at the batter's head and then sweeping across and catching the low outside corner of the plate. Unhittable. I rode that curve for a long time. It was my ticket to the country's leading photography school, which then opened the doors to a lifetime of career opportunities. These days, I'm still playing baseball and creating photographs. And now I know, in many ways, it all started with my dad. My father threw me curves most of his life. That was an unchangeable game plan since he had bipolar disorder. For a long time, it made me angry. Angry that he was throwing them, and angry at myself for not being able to catch them. Now I realize that we were just both doing the best we could, given the tools we had. It is simply accepting what is and what has been. Now, I don't think my dad and I can ever fully go back to those magical moments before the fall. But when I think of my dad, and I think of baseball, and I think of throwing that curve again, it feels like we come damn close. Jay turns and starts to walk off stage, and in the darkness we hear, Take
1: me out to the ball game, take me out to the crowd, buy me some peanuts and crack a jack. I don't care if I ever get back, cause it's root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame, cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old o game